is your idea of the golden age? The golden age of history, what's your idea of it? Maybe, maybe it's the time from your childhood when there were less stresses, when life was simpler, when people were happier, when neighbors doggone it respected one another. Maybe your idea of the golden age of history is an age you haven't known yet and no one has seen yet. Maybe it's an age when people will finally be given a fair shot, a clean slate, better health. Whatever your idea of the golden age of history, I think we can all agree that we're not in it. Not only do we see it in what makes us discontent, we also see it in our longings. All of us long for home. All of us long for peace. All of us long for abundance. Some will argue that the golden age of history means to recapture what we once had. Others will argue that the golden age of history will mean to press on to what's new. Well, the Bible tells us that the golden age of history is actually a combination of both. It is to recapture the past and to press forward to what's better. The past we recapture in the golden age is Eden, paradise with God. The future is a place that's even better than Eden, a place where Christ will show us his face and where we will share his glory. The golden age of history. Now the next question is, how do we get there? How do we get to that place? How do we enter the place where God dwells? Theologian Michael Morales argues that this is the central question of the entire Bible. We read it in Psalm 15. We read it in Psalm 24. O oh Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy mountain? How do we live where God lives? Enter Leviticus. I know that's probably not what you were expecting, was it? Because you thought Leviticus and was just a weird and antiquated list of do's and don'ts. My friend, it is so much more than this. Leviticus is part of the narrative of how God brings sinful people into his presence. Now, this seems impossible, and it should be impossible. God reveals himself as holy. God reveals himself as a consuming fire. But God is determined to dwell with his people, and God will make a way. And we might forget this, but God delivered his people more than just to spare them from death and judgment. God delivered his people more than just to spare them from death and judgment. God delivered his people to dwell with his people, to be with them. This is how it's always been. From Exodus 15, right after God delivered his people from Egypt, this is from the Song of Moses. You and your loving kindness will lead forth the people you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy habitation. In the place, O Lord, you have made for your own dwelling. God delivers his people to dwell with his people. And God will make a way. 
It's how he did, he did this in Exodus, and he does this now. God delivered us from our sins through Jesus, and he dwells in us by his Spirit. And God's people, even in Leviticus, and once again into the future, God's people will be like the burning bush. The burning bush. We will be a light with the presence and glory of God, and yet we, will, we won't be consumed. But how? Well, in the opening chapters of Leviticus, God tells us that we approach his presence only through sacrifice. We approach his presence only through sacrifice. That's the main point of our time together. And Leviticus, you might see it as a really technical book. As we said last week, it's often, if you determine to read the Bible through in a year, it's often the place where you stop. And so we're trying to make a technical book Show, it, show its beauty for what it actually is. Show how Leviticus actually is precious to us and why God included it in his word. So Leviticus 1 through 7. Uh, we're going to start by reading the whole thing. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, we're going to start We're going to start our tour of these chapters uh, kind of like a flyover. We're going to picture a plane at its highest points. We're going to start there and kind of make our descent and zoom in. So we're going to start from looking at Leviticus 1 to 7 from like 30,000 feet, okay? Uh, so to explain these opening chapters well, we have to see how they fit within the entire Bible, especially with what's come so far. Now it's helpful at, at 30,000 feet to think of the story of the Bible so far in terms of geography, like where the action has taken place. So where does the Bible open up? Anybody? Garden of Eden, very nice, very good. Genesis begins in Eden. People rebel against God, and God pushes them out of Eden. He casts them from his presence. And God and Genesis ends with God's people in, anybody know? Ooh, tougher one. They end up in Egypt. So they go from Eden to Egypt, and that's where the book of Exodus begins. Exodus also begins in Egypt. God will deliver his people from Egypt, and Exodus will end in the wilderness of Sinai, in between Egypt and the Promised Land. But at the end of Exodus, we see this tabernacle is set up in the wilderness. Now, the word tabernacle means dwelling place. So in the middle of this desert, here is a mini recaptured Garden of Eden. And God intends his dwelling place to expand further into the place where he's leading them, into the land of Canaan, the promised land. So this bigger story of the Bible, even in terms of geography, shows us what God wants to accomplish in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, God tells his people how to approach his presence. He set up his presence in the desert, and now he tells them how to approach him. He also will tell his people in Leviticus how they will live with him and for him in the promised land. And that's roughly the first and second half of the books of Leviticus. First half of Leviticus is how to approach God. Second half of Leviticus is how to live for God and with God in the promised land. So those are the that's Leviticus at 30,000 feet. And just one more note on how knowing the bigger story of the Bible helps us to read Leviticus. One more note on it. Um, has anyone ever been to Chuck E. Cheese? Raise your hand. This is going somewhere, I promise you. All right, yes. I think, 
I heard someone got shot at the Chuck E. Cheese in Parmatown a few years back. I don't know if that's true, so that's a good endorsement for that one. Um, well, at Chuck E. Cheese or any arcade, uh, you know that there's a prize wall, right? There is a prize wall at any arcade. It, the prize wall is filled with items from the dollar store and items you would find at Best Buy maybe 15 years ago. Um, so the masterminds at Chuck E. Cheese have devised an elaborate ticket system to earn these coveted prizes. If you play a game well, you get tickets, and if you get enough tickets, you can get a prize. It all seems very arbitrary, it all seems very unfair, because you end up spending way more in tickets than you would actually pay for an item. So you end up spending three times the amount of what a portable DVD player from 2005 really costs. <laughs> Bring this up, all because bigger story of the Bible reminds us Leviticus is not Chuck E. Cheese. Leviticus isn't an arcade. Yes, Leviticus has instructions, but Leviticus is not an arbitrary system whereby God's people earn their way back to him. The bigger story of the Bible reminds us that God has already delivered his people. He's already saved them. So I've heard one pastor explain it like this, Leviticus isn't how to earn your way to God. It's how you don't asphyxiate in your garage with the car running. God's commands in Leviticus are Israel's response to God's grace. God's commands in Leviticus are how Israel lives in relationship with him. So that's Leviticus from the 30,000 feet. So we'll descend a little bit and look closer. Leviticus 1 to 7 from 3,000 feet. Now, as we head into this, one of your New Year's resolutions might be to watch what you eat, maybe watch your carbs. Now, Leviticus 1 to 7 is like a sandwich. And I'm sorry to inform those non-carb eaters, we're going to start the sandwich with the buns. Okay? So the first bun is actually the end of the book of Exodus. So I want you to open there to Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 and 35. It's page 88 or something. Uh, no, it's page 80 in, your, in the Bible, if you're looking at the Bible in front of you. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 to 35. This is the first bun of Leviticus 1 to 7. These verses say this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You look at these verses, did you catch the two different names for the tabernacle? One is tabernacle, and that's where God fills it. He fills the tabernacle so that he can dwell there. But Moses, as the representative of Israel, cannot enter the tent of meeting. Two different names, tabernacle, tent of meeting. Moses can't meet God where God dwells. So again, Leviticus is how God's people can approach God's presence. Another way we can put it, Leviticus is how God's dwelling place can become God's meeting place with men. So with these words in mind, Leviticus 1.1 opens, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, and what does God say? Well, let's look at the bottom bun of Leviticus 1 to 7. 
we get a summary of what God says. So flip to Leviticus chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. So again, this is just these chapters from a 3,000-foot view, which is a basic overview. Leviticus 7, verses 37 and 38. It says, this is the law of the burnt offering, of the grain offering, of the sin offering, of the guilt offering, of the ordination offering, and of the peace offering which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day that he commanded the people of Israel to bring their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So this is a summary statement of all that chapters 1 to 7 talk about. So God calls Moses from the tent and he tells him, tells him about these five different sacrifices. So again, it's just 3,000 foot view. The first three sacrifices in chapters 1 through 3 are the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the peace offering. These opening sacrifices are the ordinary offerings of everyday worship. The fourth and fifth sacrifices are covered in chapters 4 and 5. And these are offerings you would give on certain occasions. Especially these are offerings that were devoted to certain kinds of sin. And then chapters 6 and 7 instruct the priests what to do with these offerings. Okay, so that's the 3,000 foot view. So to, re to review, Leviticus 1-7 tells God's people how to approach and meet with God. And they do this through these sacrifices. Okay, so we've gotten 30,000 foot, 3,000 feet, and now we're going to look at Leviticus 1-7 from 300 feet. Think of this if you've seen vid drone videos. Uh, and for a little while, we're going to hover over one spot and with a 300 foot view, we won't be able to see everything, but we hope we can see a lot of things over these chapters, okay? So Leviticus 1 to 7 from 300 feet. So flip to chapter 1, verse 1, once again. Start from the beginning. We're gonna start with the burnt offering. We're gonna linger here just for a little bit and then we'll move a little bit quicker through the rest, all right? We'll start with the burnt offering. So just when Moses can't enter the tabernacle, then Lord calls. Verse 1 orients us for the entire book. How will God, God's people be able to approach God's presence? Well, it won't be because God's people figured it out on their own. It won't be because they made up their own rules that seemed good to them. God's people will be able to approach God's presence because God told them how to. It's the foundation of God's word right from the beginning. And the name Leviticus means things concerning the Levites. The, the Levites were the tribe of priests. And yes, Leviticus is filled with instructions for the priests. But the Hebrew name for the book captures the book's direction and orientation a little bit better, I think. The Hebrew name reflects chapter 1, verse 1. The Hebrew name for Leviticus means, and he called. God called Moses from the tent tells him first about the burnt offering. Now, the burnt offering is the most common of all the sacrifices. Other places tell us that the burnt offering was done every morning and evening. And God instructed the fire from the burnt offering always to be going, never to have any interruption. So we look closer at chapter 1, the instructions for the burnt offering. I just want us to get a sense of what it was like to experience this. We read into verse 2. Notice the person who God is instructing. Notice the person whom God charges to make the offering. Verse 2, 
says, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Is God talking to the priest? No. He's talking to individual Israelites. God instructs individual Israelites to bring their animals from their herds or their flocks. The individual was to bring it to the tent of meeting. Hop down to verse 4. The individual Israelite lays his hands on the animal. Verse 5. The individual Israelite is even the one who kills the animal. Verse 6. The individual Israelite is the one who skins the animal. Verse 6 still, the individual Israelite is the one who cuts the animal up into pieces. Now just hold on a second. Now you've read Leviticus and it's been boring, but think about this. Can you imagine doing this? Can you imagine this? I can't even remember the last time I stood next to a cow. Let alone, I've never slaughtered a cow. Leviticus 1, this is no religion of I show up and I pay someone else to be religious for me. This is no religion like that. This is not passive participation. Individual Israelites were active in approaching God. The book of Exodus, God tells them that they were to be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people who draw near to God. This is no passive participation. Leviticus 1.1 tells us this is neither empty ritual. This isn't an empty ritual. This offering is way too costly for the individual Israelite just to go through the motions. To give up a male animal without any defects is to give up a prized possession. And yet, God makes provisions for poorer Israelites in verse 10 and in verse 14. He makes those provisions. But whatever your income status, your sacrifice would be a sacrifice to make. You would feel it. You couldn't go to Giant Eagle and get any cut of meat that you wanted. You would have raised this animal. You would have fed this animal. You would have tended to it. And then you would have been the one who decided to bring your best animal from your herd and bring it to the tabernacle and then kill it yourself. And we think about maybe the motivations that would go in their head, that this is no empty ritual. I bet you and I would be tempted to try to sneak in an animal with maybe some hidden defects. I bet maybe we might think, oh, the priest is, it might be willing to bend on some corners to meet his quota. You and I might be tempted to think that, oh, I, I bet if I could slide the priest to 20, he would accept my animal with some defects. In fact, you know what? God later calls out his people for doing things like this. Through the prophet Malachi, chapter 1, verse 8, God says to them, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? This is no empty ritual. 
if we can get in their heads, maybe be like them and we put ourselves in their shoes, we could hold out hope that we, we might, we could give our best, but we might be able to keep back part of it for ourselves. Oh, that's not the case either. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, for the burnt offering, you sacrifice all of the animal. You don't get to hold back any of it. Friends, this was no empty ritual. The Israelites' worship of God was to be personal, not passive. It was to be careful, not casual. It was to be sincere, not empty. It was to be comprehensive, not partial. So can you start to see how Leviticus might be relevant still? God has called those who he has made his own through Christ to worship him with all of their being. Today, our worship of God must still be personal, careful, sincere, and comprehensive. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, that's the experience of this burnt offering. Now, what, was, what is the result or what's the purpose of the burnt offering? We see that in a couple of places. First, we see it in verse 4, which says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for, his, for him. And also we see the results at the end of verse 9. It says, when all of it is burned, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, what do these results mean, and how do, we, how do these results work? I think it's helpful to keep in mind what's being sacrificed. What's being sacrificed is a, uh, an animal without blemish. This should communicate to the Israelite, to the worshiper sacrificing, that this is the kind of life that he should have lived. This is the kind of life that is acceptable to God. This communicates to the one making the sacrifice that an innocent, blameless life goes in the place of a guilty, sinful person. And there's personal ownership of that reality when the worshiper lays his hands on the animal. So what are the results of giving an innocent, blameless life? Well, result number one is that God will accept the sinful worshiper through a blameless substitute. Second result, God will atone for the sins of the worshiper through the blood of a blameless substitute. Now, atonement has two parts. The first part is that blood ransoms the worshiper from the penalty of sin. The second part is that blood cleanses the worshiper of his sin. When you combine these parts together, you get atonement. Just break down that word and you see that the person is now at one with God. What's the result of the burnt offering? Well, result number three is that God will bring the worshiper to himself through the substitute. This is the pleasing aroma. It's through the burning of the animal and the smoke that rises that the worshiper vicariously ascends and returns to God. Again, it would communicate to the Israelite that the only one who could dwell with God in heaven is the one whose life is blameless, whose life is pleasing to him. And so here, right even at the beginning, we can see how Christ is so gloriously and finally fulfilled the burnt offering sacrifice. 
So many places in scripture that we can quote, but just to quote a few, First Peter 1.19 says that those who trust in Christ were ransomed by, by his precious blood shed for them, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says that he will give his life as a ransom for many. 1 John 1, 7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses the sin of those who trust him. And to prove God accepted Christ's sacrifice, God rose him from the dead, and Jesus ascended to heaven. John 14, 3, Jesus promises that those who believe in him, that where he is, they will be also. So friends, if we have any hope, to be brought back to God, any hope to be accepted by him, any hope to live where God lives. And right away in Leviticus, it tells us there must be a blameless life that goes in our place. So my friend, if you haven't done it, tell God today that you have, you have no business to stand and you say, God, I appeal to Jesus Christ's perfect, sinless life to stand in my place. And I appeal to Jesus Christ sacrificing his life that pays for my sin and cleanses me of my sin. And even just in reflecting on the burnt offering, we appreciate so much more what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And this appreciation will only grow as we continue in Leviticus. So we'll pick up the pace a little bit because many elements from the burnt offering overlap with other sacrifices from chapters one to seven. So let's go to chapter two, the grain offering. Grain is the most common food back then. This is their everyday diet. That they sacrifice a portion of this reminds them that their ordinary everyday lives belong to the Lord. And they're gonna get other reminders of this in Leviticus. But even here we remind ourselves that our ordinary everyday lives belong to the Lord. God cares about your Tuesday night after you're done with dinner and how you wash the dishes. God cares about your 20-minute commute to work. God cares about your gratitude before a meal. God cares about your ordinary, everyday life. The grain offering reminds us of this. Chapter 2, verse 1 says the grain offering was to be fine flour seasoned with the costly spice of frankincense. Again, they sacrificed their best. The grain offering was not their leftovers that were a week old and were stinking up their fridge. This was their best. We read also the grain offering that part of it was a memorial portion. Now, memorial calls us to remember something. In this case, the grain offering called God to remember them. Can God forgive them? No. It's more that they have to acknowledge that they need God. We need you, God, to remember us. And so like the burnt offering, the grain offering was done every day. So every day, every day, the Israelite would confess their sin, and every day the Israelite would acknowledge his or her need for the Lord. Does, does that sound like maybe the Lord's prayer to you? Something we would do every day? The grain offering, chapter 2, verse 3. It also functioned as the primary way that the priests got their food. God charged the people to support their priests so that they could devote themselves entirely to their work. Thank you for doing that for me as well. Uh, God also gave further instructions about what to include and what not to include with the grain offering. This is in verses 11 to 13. God told them, don't include leaven, don't include honey. 
properly told lie. Other places in the Bible tell us leaven is associated with sin and its corrupting influence. Honey, your guess is best as mine. Honey could be something that should be reserved for a different offering, uh, but God does say to include salt. And he, it's not just because God likes the savior, savory, uh, it, it says it's the salt of the covenant. So when they burned up the grain offering, the salt would be the only thing that's left. The salt could then remind the Israelites about God's eternal love for them in their covenant, even that endures the fire. So that's chapter two, the grain offering. Go next to chapter three. Chapter three covers the peace offering. If you read chapter three, we see the procedure looks a lot like the burnt offering, but there are a couple differences. One of the big differences with the peace offering is that you don't sacrifice the entire animal. Instead, you sacrifice only the fat. Now again, we gotta make something clear. The fat is not the grizzle you cut off and put in your dog's food bowl. The fat is the best part of the animal. This would be like the filet mignon. This should remind the Israelites that God is worthy of the most honor, of the best. And what do they do with the rest of the animal if they just get, if they sacrifice only the fat? Well, chapter 7 fills in the gaps. The peace offering is the one offering that the individual Israelites could eat. The peace offering, then, is like sharing a meal with God. Back then and even now, eating together confirms and strengthens your relationship together. So here, for this worshiper is at one with God again. He's reconciled. And we still, we still today celebrate peace with God through a meal. We'll do it in a few minutes. We do it in the Lord's Supper. In this meal, we give honor to the Lord and we are reminded of the peace with God achieved through the body and blood of Christ. That's the peace offering. Flying over still, chapters four and five, they cover the sin and guilt offerings. These offerings were done as they were needed. When the Israelites sinned, they defiled themselves. They were supposed to be clean and sin made them dirty. This describes how sin often makes us feel. Sin often makes us feel soiled, dirty. God is holy and cannot allow what's unclean to be in his holy habitation. But God also is merciful, and he provides a way to cleanse his dwelling place and the people he dwells with. So enter the sin and guilt offerings. So we look at chapter 4, it deals mainly with the sin offerings, and it, deal, it covers sins that it calls unintentional. It's not to say that these were sins that people did by accident. It's these were sins rather that something you did that was wrong, but you forgot about it or you didn't acknowledge it. Chapter 5 goes on and talks about sins of omission, things that you should do, but you didn't do. So example, verse 1 of chapter 5, a person has a chance to help out somebody in court, but they don't show up. Hence, uh, the sin of omission. Again, for the sin offering, the main emphasis is that sin makes you dirty. And the sin offering cleanses and purifies. And God gives different instructions with the sin offering depending on who's the person who sins. And so he treats the sin of the entire group of people or the sin of the high priest. He treats those sins more seriously than the sin of an individual Israelite. 
If, if it would, the entire congregation sinned, if the high priest sinned, they would have to sacrifice a more valuable animal. They would have to go further into the tabernacle and sprinkle the blood of the animal. Maybe just a small reminder, yes, pray for your individual walk with the Lord. But please pray also for our corporate walk with the Lord as a church that God would preserve us over generations to remain faithful. We shouldn't take that for granted. Pray for your individual walk with the Lord, but pray also for your elders and our walk with the Lord, that we would heed Paul's instructions to Timothy to watch our lives and our doctrines. And so here, moving into the last part of chapter 5, we look at verses 14 to 19. This covers a new type of offering. It covers the guilt offering. Other people call it a reparation offering. So this is when people violate God's holy things or God's holy name. What's emphasized in the guilt offering is that the sacrifice makes restitution. You see that in verse 16. This offering reminds us that our sin incurs a debt with God and with other people. It reminds us that our sin breaks a relationship then the relationship needs to be repaired. So example from the Bible, the Gospel of Luke. I like using this example. You know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, the infamous tax collector, when he repents of his sin, he doesn't just repent of his sin. He repairs the relationship with the people that he frauded. He pays them back and then some. This is another aspect of what Christ did for us on the cross. He paid our debt. He paid our debt to repair our relationship with God. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Finally, we come to chapter 6 and 7, and these are instructions for how the priests should handle all these different offerings. This is like the priest's South Beach diet. This is what they can eat and where they can eat it. Now, from these chapters, they mainly tell the priests uh, who can eat the sacrifices, where they can eat them, and there are more details we can't explore, but I want to focus just on the high level. Priests, just like all the worshipers in Israel, had to pay close attention to obeying God's instructions. They had to pay close attention. They could not treat worshiping God casually. They had to treat it carefully. That's a word for the church in 2021. Not to treat the worship of God casually, but carefully. Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I know it's been a quick pace, but after we've flown over those chapters, even at a drone level, it might not be obvious how these sacrifices fit together, even in what order they would go in. So keep in mind, in Leviticus, Moses is describing what would have been second nature to the Israelites. This would have been the air that they breathed. Getting the full sense and meaning of it takes some work. I've heard someone liken it to a person a thousand years from now, 
listening to an um, old radio broadcast of a baseball game and trying to figure out the rules of the game. You could do it, it'll take a little bit of work. So we might get some help though from chapter nine, verse 22. This is just a sneak preview that I hope is helpful for now. Chapter nine, verse 22. Moses and Aaron are finally allowed to enter the tent of meeting. But before they do, chapter nine, verse 22 says, Aaron offered the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. The sin offering cleansed and purified the worshiper. The burnt offering also did that in more of a general way, but the burnt offering more than that consecrated the worshiper. It showed the worshiper's complete devotion. The peace offering reflected the renewed fellowship with God. So the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. If that indicates an order, then it would mean that the Israelites first has their sins washed away, then they are set apart for worship, then they enjoy peace with God. If that's any clue of the order of all the moving parts, I think it could help us. Sins washed away, set apart for worship, enjoy peace with God. All right, that's the 300 foot view. Now, before we close, uh, have we been to Disney World or Cedar Point or Universal? Anybody? Yes? Great. Now, every great theme park ride will exit you where? A gift shop. Because why waste an opportunity to sell someone stuff? <laughs> We can walk away from Leviticus 1 to 7, and I didn't print t shirts that said, I survived my first Levit Leviticus or so. <laughs> you can walk away with better souvenirs than a personalized keychain or a picture of you screaming on a roller coaster. Uh, what are some souvenirs we could take with us after Leviticus 1 to 7? What should we take away with us? I, I, I suggest quickly five souvenirs. All right. Number one, from Leviticus 1 to 7. We should take with us a deep awareness of the darkness of sin. A deep awareness of the darkness of sin. Again, just imagine being an individual Israelite having to do this. These bloody sacrifices in Leviticus reminds them of what sin means. To sin is to turn your back to God, the maker of everything, the giver of life. To turn your back on God is to go to the realm of dead. Away from the God of life, there is no life. Leviticus 1 to 7 should press upon us that the wages of sin is death. What should we take away from us? Second souvenir, we should take away an awe of God's majesty and mercy. An awe of God's majesty and mercy. Leviticus 1 to 7 tells us that God's not to be trifled with. This intricate system of sacrifice should remind us of the infinite chasm that exists between us and our maker. But this chasm should also make us amazed at God's mercy. He doesn't have to make a way back to him, and yet he does. He speaks and he pulls his people back. The God who is separate from sinners is the same God who forgives sinners. We thank him for this. Number three, we should take with us an appreciation of just how precious Christ's sacrifice is. An appreciation for just how precious Christ's sacrifice is. I mean, look at chapters one to seven. Just consider the sheer amount of effort it takes for a sinner to be acceptable in God's sight. 
and then compare that to Romans 10 verse 9 which says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved compare those two things my friend I dare you to be ungrateful it makes us appreciate all that Christ accomplished for us and for those who believed all these sacrifices should make us appreciate that Christ is the full and final sacrifice. We should walk away from Leviticus 1 to 7, ready to devote our entire lives to God in grateful and careful worship. Ready to devote our entire lives to God in grateful and careful worship. Jesus has cleansed us, He has paid for our sin. He has canceled our debt. He has reconciled us to God. How do we respond? Well, Isaac Watts wrote it well in his hymn. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Lastly, we should walk away from Leviticus 1 to 7, enjoying the fellowship of God with God that Christ has won for us enjoying the fellowship with God that Christ has won for us. Brother and sister, you don't just get to escape from hell, as good of news as that is. You get to be with God. So draw near to him. Know him. Rest in him. Enjoy him. Close with Psalm 84, verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing did not leave us where we were. You did not leave us separated from you, and though we did not seek you, you sought us. Thank you for speaking from the tent to Moses. Thank you for providing the sacrifices that will go in our place, and Lord Jesus, thank you for being the final and full sacrifice for our sin, that we may dwell with God. Teach us to appreciate what you've done for us, Teach us to live our entire lives for you and teach us to enjoy being near you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.